Okay, so welcome back to House Wine. Um, I decided to branch out a little bit this week. My initial intention was um, that I was going to do my first episode as French wine law, and then we were going to cover just a bunch of France. Um, but as we speak now, or as I'm recording this now, uh, Napa is burning, uh, and it's a really... Um, really sad time in the wine world. And I just, I keep, I mean, on my newsfeed, I keep getting bombarded with, um, you know, I open, I open up my newsfeed every day and it's just like, oh, um, there's a global pandemic in case you didn't know. And also this whole region that you love and wanted to go back to someday and visit is on fire. Uh, so it's like not, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty bleak. So this is basically going to be um, a love letter from the past um, because who knows by the time that I've finished recording and editing and blah, 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 and this is out in the world, um, maybe the fires will have gone out. Maybe there'll be some miraculous um, rain storm. I, I don't know. I'm not a firefighter. I don't even know if rain puts out forest fires, like forest fires of that magnitude, but maybe everything will be good and maybe we'll have gone back to some version of, you know, air quotations normal. Um, but I think it's pretty unlikely. I, my brother lives in uh, BC and the wildfires are there too. And he says it's just like smog, smog, smog every day. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. But I've been thinking a lot about Napa and the ways in which it has personally touched and affected my own career in the wine industry. And really, suffice to say, um, I love it. I opened up a bottle of wine um, to drink, and I'm just going to mention uh, what it is. I would love to say that it was a bottle of Napa, and I definitely have uh, quite a bit of Napa in my personal seller, but uh, to me, Napa's not like a record the podcast and chill kind of wine. It's a like big celebratory fun kind of wine. Uh, so I'm drinking actually a ferment from Hungary, which seems pretty counterintuitive to doing a Napa episode, but it was um, cheap and cheerful and it's what in my f- was in my fridge uh, chilling. So uh, that's what I'm drinking right now, but we're going to talk a lot about Napa wine. I'm going to wish I had a Napa wine in my glass by the time uh, this is all over. I think I should start with saying that I've actually had the really beautiful experience of going to Napa and it was just fucking out. It was just amazing. And um Not only did I get to go there, I got to go there with some of my dearest friends in the wine world. Um, My cats are scratching a scratching post. That's great. Um, I got to go with my study group, uh, my brains, as we call each other because we're nerds. And we had like the most amazing time and we went to some really amazing wineries that like not a lot of people ever really get to go to. Um, we went to Joseph Phelps, we went to Colgan, which was all the way up on the top of this mountain. And I remember it was like being a place that I had studied and I finally got to put all these pieces together. And when we were driving up to Colgan, we were driving up this mountain all the way up to Pritchard Hill, which is basically like um, an unofficial uh, sub-region of Napa. But we're driving up to Pritchard Hill and... Um, you know, we're looking at this beautiful uh, lake below and I'm like, oh, look at that beautiful, like crystal clear lake. And uh, my friend is like, yeah, that's Lake Hennessy. And I'd be like, ah, it's Lake Hennessy. Like I've studied that. I know that. And I got to see it. And then I got to see it from the top of a mountain, which is just like so, just so cool. But one of the favorite wineries that I um, visited while we were there was Joseph Phelps. Um, hey, it's just a stunning property. And, uh, you know, there's like, it's one of those wineries where there's like animals everywhere. Like we were looking out over the, um, I don't know what you'd like, like a hacienda or like terrace and um there was uh like a group of wild turkeys and i was like oh do those belong to the vineyard and the guy who was showing us around was like nope there's just some turkeys i was like ah i love turkeys like everything's just was very magical um but we met a sommelier there uh who was like a little bit of an old school guy he was um a little like 
older than I am for sure. Um, and his name, he was, and he was a bit of an oddball and his name was, uh, Sandrew, not Andrew, um, but Sandrew. And sorry, Sandrew, if you're listening to this, I'm not disparaging you. I just thought you were, uh, very eccentric and funny, but he had dubbed himself the dancing sommelier and he had these, um, business cards that were like something out of like an, a weird, <laughs> weird like 90s time warp but he had this this really great quote um about napa that um in retrospect now that i'm thinking about it i i don't think he i don't think he made this up i don't think it was an original sandra quote i think he probably stole it from somebody but he he told us he's like he said farmers were the ones who started Napa. This was originally a community of farmers, and the farmers in the 90s and 80s, 80s and 90s, basically, were bought out by millionaires. And now, in modern Napa, the millionaires are being bought out by the billionaires. But the farmers are still here, and there are still farmers that, you know, work the land, even though they're um, employed by billionaires. And I think this is for me <laughs> to go full circle before I get into the meat of this episode um, is really the most depressing thing about the fires because I think it's easy to think about the owner of a winery, especially a winery in a place like the Napa Valley that's very rich, um, as kind of this like fat cat sitting on a mountain of cash and that these winery owners will be reimbursed by their insurance and that there's no real loss here other than, you know, some wine and some vintages. But other than the fact that wine grapes take a minimum of three years to be productive, um, which means that wineries who are destroyed now and decide to replant crops will see no profit from these new vines, um, which means we won't see wines on the market until maybe 2024 at the earliest, most likely, you know, with like a little bit of barrel aging, etc. You're really looking at 2025. Most of the grapes that are left this year in the wineries that do survive are going to suffer from something called smoke taint. And that's a fault that's common in areas that are often affected by wildfires. And it makes the resulting wines taste like, um, well, I mean, not like to be quite literal, like they're ashy. They kind of taste like ash in your mouth, like you've, um, like somebody's dropped a cigarette in your wine. And the real matter of the fact here is that Wineries, I find, they almost act like a microcosm of an economy. Uh, not that I'm an economist, and if you are, I'm so sorry if this is like a horrible analogy. But my heart goes out to everyone who's who's really lost their jobs and their livelihoods in these fires. And that's really, like Sandra said, it's the farmers who take care of the fields. It's, you know, it's forklift operators who move pallets of wine for storage and shipping and barrels. It's the marketing departments, it's the summer interns of the marketing departments, it's, you know, the people who work in the tasting rooms, it's events coordinators and wedding planners, and it's, you know, of course, sommeliers and people who come together really to make this product. And a lot of these same people, these people who are the forklift drivers, they've also lost their homes in the fires. And I think that's something that you have to think about when you think about the fact that it's not just the winery owner that's losing out here. It's really this, you know, whole chain, this whole ecosystem that makes a winery function. I think it's also important to acknowledge that Really, when you're buying a wine over a certain price, and the price is really a lot lower than you might think, it's really hovering around, like, I'd say 20 to $25 a bottle Canadian in my market. When you buy a wine that's above this price, you have to understand that it was touched by about 50 people before it ever made it to you. And those are the same people I mentioned before. Those are, you know, right from the people who sort out the rotten grapes on the sorting table at harvest to the people who put it on the shelf for you to buy. And that's why fires like this are, are really, truly sad, um, apart from, of course, the loss of life and the loss of homes. Because, yeah, I'll, I'll miss Napa wine. I will miss going to trade shows and chasing new vintages. Not that I'm doing that anyway, because I can't think of anything less COVID safe than um, a bunch of people spitting communally into a bucket. <laughs> but that aside, really people's livelihoods are going to be affected for years to come from this. And it's, it's really gut wrenching. So 
This is my love letter to Napa because I love it there and I have really beautiful memories associated uh, with it. Like I said, I uh, got to go there with my friends uh, Nabila and Carolyn and we went there uh, right before my friend Nabila got married in California. So we went on this sort of like bachelorette wine tour of uh, of nerdiness. Um, but uh, we all studied together for advanced, and I feel like I owe them like a real, a real debt of gratitude for being my best study buddies ever. That said, I'll, I'll launch into like one tiny little more anecdote about Napa, um, <laughs> personal anecdote about Napa before I uh, just talk about my sources because what this is about my sources. There is one um, absolutely fabulous writer, um, and her name is Kelly White, and she wrote a book on Napa called A Napa Then and Now, and. And I'd heard of this book before I went there, and it's really um, not really available for order online, and it is not really anywhere that I could find it in Toronto. So when I went to Napa, I, uh, my friend Carol and I were like, okay, this is our chance to get this book. We we're both so excited to get Kelly White's book. And we looked everywhere, went to some bookstores, went to some wineries, and people had heard of it for sure, but didn't really know where to get it. And so as a last ditch effort, I um, messaged Kelly White on Instagram and was like, where can we buy your book? And to my surprise, she got back to me within like 15 minutes. And of course, I like kind of fangirled. I was like, oh my God, Kelly White and I are basically best friends because we message on Instagram all the time. But she directed us to this little, um, like wine boutique wine bar in Napa. And I feel bad. I, I can really can't remember it, uh, the name of it right now, but, uh, very cute. And they had just two copies. Uh, so we got the last two and they were $90 American each, um, which equals to about, I think it was like around $140. So like not, an inexpensive book. Like, it's probably the most outside of university I've ever spent on a book. Um, and that's because when you go to university, <clears throat> you know, your professor makes you buy a copy of uh, their thesis that uh, never got published and costs like $400. Anyways, all to say. But got that book, felt really great about it. Um, what I didn't realize is that the book is the largest book you've ever seen in your life. It's like like truly it's a tome. Like if I didn't know this was a wine book, I would think it was like an ancient book of arcane spells or something. Like it's massive. And I had only brought uh, like a tiny little, you know, carry-on luggage, carry-on suitcase because I'm not a heavy packer by any means. I basically only own one pair of shoes. Anyway, so the book ended up taking up my entire suitcase and I just bought a backpack also in Napa and used that for all my clothes back on the plane and just um, used the suitcase to transport my book. When we got it back to Toronto, uh, we weighed it and the book actually weighs 13 and a half pounds. I'm surprised I didn't have to pay any like overweight luggage, but I mean, it was actually the only thing in my bag. So anyway, it's massive. But it's massive because it is the entire history and there's a page on like every single winery with a bunch of their wines in Napa Point Finale. Like it is huge and amazing. And I'm not going to say go out and buy this book. I mean, if you see it somewhere and you're like, holy shit, that's the book, then go get it. Unless you're studying wine, I don't know um, what use a uh, nearly 14-pound book on Napa would be to you. But anyways, I used it for this podcast, so it did come in really helpful. Uh, so I used, of course, um, Kelly White's Napa Then and Now. Kelly White's a fantastic writer. She also um, writes a lot for a website called Guild Psalm, which um, if you are studying to be a wine professional or to be a sommelier is an invaluable resource. Um, I don't use Skillsome to look up sources on this podcast, um, mostly because I am like, they have their own podcast and I would, I feel weird, like they're going to sue me or something, even though I like, I don't think that would be the case because I'm a paid member of this website, but I just don't feel comfortable using it. So I use, um, real books, the books that open and close, not the internet books to 
check all my sources, and then of course I use Wikipedia. So I use those. I also used A Thousand and One Wines to Try Before You Die by Neil Beckett, um, and my old and dear friend, The World Atlas of Wine by Hugh Johnson and Jancis Robinson, uh, the seventh edition. I do have the eighth edition, um, but I use the seventh edition more. Um, the eighth edition I have as an ebook, um, and I just like using book books. So um, with that, we're going to start with history because that is, of course, where I like to start things. So Napa was inhabited for much longer than many of us would sort of think in terms of modern history. Uh, you hear Napa and all of a sudden you kind of think of these picturesque vineyards and mountains, but Napa was first settled by the Wapo people, um, an indigenous tribe who lived mainly within the Napa Valley and parts of the Russian River and Sonoma. And they were primarily hunter-gatherer people. And I really couldn't find very much information on how the population of Wapo were before any colonial interference, but they were colonized by Mexico, and it's known that by the late 1700s, there were only roughly a thousand Wapo people left. They were, by the Mexican uh, colonizers, considered to be a very fierce and um, and uh, warrior-esque people, so um, there's writings and such that say that they, they put up a pretty good fight against their colonizers, but um, were ultimately, um, there wasn't many of them left, uh, which, is, which is really sad. That's the new world for you. We're, it's going to be hard to talk about new world wine and not talk about colonial influence. I'm, it's... It's just one of those things. But today, um, those who can trace their lineage to the Wapo is only about 300 people in Northern California. Again, a reminder that when we speak of New World wines, we often have to acknowledge um, that wine in the New World was a colonialist endeavor um, and was grown to service missionaries and religious outposts um, before it became you know, the light bulb went off that if you can grow wine there for God, you can grow it for money, um, which is kind of what you see in a lot of places. Um, California being no exception, um, you know, Chile, South Africa, Australia, Canada, that's kind of the norm. So these were Mexican colonizers that were coming in. And we have to be careful here as well, because when we talk about um, Mexican uh, colonizers or colonizers coming up from Mexico, we're not really talking about the indigenous Mexican people, but we're talking about uh, colonists, people who were of Spanish and Portuguese descent. And I wish I had a better reference point for this in my mind, um, not to make light of what is quite a serious subject, but um, I kind of learned most of this as a kid from watching the movie Zorro with Antonio Banderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones, because that VHS got uh, a lot of play in our house. Like, we loved that movie. So when I think of um, yeah, Mexican uh, colonization in California, I always, like, have this, like, picture of Antonio Banderas in my mind. It's it's a thing. Um, but the first grape ever to be planted in California was called Mission, uh, which was a grape that was brought over from Spain uh, to be planted by none other than, this might be shocking, missionaries. Like I mentioned, they needed their sacramental wine. And Mission itself basically died out in Europe when they were affected by phylloxera, that little uh, North American uh, root louse that left vineyards paralyzed for the better part of the late 19th century in Europe. The only place that it did survive uh, the Mission Grape was on the Canary Islands, uh, which is like a little tiny band of islands just sort of south of Spain, kind of near, a little bit near Morocco, and where they still grow it. Um, and in the Canary Islands, of course, they have a different name for it because that's wine for you. They call it Listan Preto. And it did really well in California because this little grape, uh, Mission and or Listan Preto, uh, is naturally resistant to drought, which means that the hotter and drier the climate, the more it manages to thrive. And this was an easy grape to plant, and it ensured that all of those missionaries and monks, they got their wine and they were able to um, have their their sacrament. There are a few uh, key players in the history of modern Napa. That's sort of the American settler time um, where we start to see the wine trade basically as we know it today. And these are the guys who saw the land and were basically like, wow, we could... Um, 
we could do something here. We can make wine. We don't have to drink it in church. And these names come up again and again because fast forward to today, they almost all have a town or region named after them. And the first one is, um, or the first ones are Charles Yount and Thomas Rutherford. Uh, when Rutherford marries Yount's daughter, Yount gives him a thousand acres of land, which sounds awesome. I really wish somebody would gift me one acre of land. That's like $1.8 million in Toronto. But he gives him a thousand acres of land in Napa. And the only person who could afford that kind of <laughs> land in Napa today is like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos or something. But Yount was the first uh, to plant grapevines for the production of non-sacramental wine. So that's really important. And he was the founder of a town that's Again, not surprisingly, because apparently nobody in the 1800s was original. Um, Yountville, the land that Rutherford inherited, um, became the town of, you guessed it, none other than Rutherford. And Rutherford was one of the first people to take a large plot of land and devoted entirely to grape growing. So that thousand acres that he inherited, he he put all of it towards grape growing. And that said, uh, here's another name. <laughs> that name is Charles Krug. So these are like the three sort of like godfathers of Napa wine. And Charles Krug was a German immigrant um, with no ties to Krug Champagne. That took me a very long time to figure out. So a gift to you all. He was actually the one who started the first commercial winery. And that was in 1861. So we're in the middle of the uh, 19th century here. And it was called the it was called St. Helena Wines and Brandies. And the kinds of wines that they'd make there were wines that were modeled after the great European wines. So you'd find things like California Sherry and St. Helena Port modeling the taste at the time, which was mainly for sweet wines. Um, he also started the Bordeaux-style wine in Napa, which is pretty much ubiquitous today. And he did grow things like Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and blends thereof. He made such a splash with these new American wines that before the 20th century rolled around, there were more than 150 wineries in operation in the Napa Valley. Um, but then there were a series of disasters in the region. Uh, the first is something we all know. It was phylloxera. And though... Phylloxera is from North America. It was more native to the East Coast. And they were still growing their vines in the Napa Valley on uh, fully European rootstock. They basically just imported a bunch of vines. So they weren't aware, much as the Europeans weren't aware, that this louse um, even existed or even had a detrimental effect. And they faced the same devastation as the growers in mainland Europe. And that was just when international trade was starting to take off. So this invasive species, even though it was sort of more native to like, you know, Pennsylvania, Virginia, that sort of like central to northeastern United States, it made its way to the West Coast quite quickly and most probably not by land. Like it didn't crawl over the prairies It most likely just like came by boat uh, like it did in Europe. A little aside, um, Thomas Jefferson, who's like way before Napa and actually has nothing to do with Napa, so this is purely tangential, um, had tried many times to grow wine in Virginia where the louse was very prominent. Um, this probably being in like the 1700s. Again, um, I, most of my listeners are Canadian, um, but I do have American listeners and I will say, forgive me, American listeners. I don't know your history super well, but he had to give up because his vines always died. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was super into wine, FYI. Um, but now we know that, uh, in all of his diaries, he would write about his inability to grow, uh, grapevines. And this was most likely because of phylloxera. So right when they were kind of trying to get things going again, they'd, you know, figured out phylloxera just like they had in Europe and they had started grafting their vines. Uh, and everyone was happy. Um, that's when it was uh, prohibition time. So prohibition basically brought everything to a grinding halt. And the good thing is that uh, Napa managed to sort of trudge through the mud of prohibition and <laughs> found ways to repurpose their wine. And I really love this period in Napa's history because they get really creative and it's really um, funny what they do. So not only could they start selling... Um, 
small portions of their wines to churches because uh, during Prohibition you were still allowed to sell your wine uh, for the purpose of sacrament, um, hearkening all the way back to those missionaries. They were like, nope, still got to have that sacramental wine. Um, and of course they started doing things like, you know, jams and jellies because... You can do that with, with grapes, too. Um, but what many grape growers did was they started growing uh, hearty varieties, the kinds that would make, like, really full-bodied, rich, and sugary juices that could withstand uh, a large journey. And they called these shipper varieties because they would literally ship them in barrels all across the country with big letters on the sides of the barrels that said, no yeast, like this is just grape juice, because grape juice is harmless, it's not alcohol. Uh, but the intent was that people buy the juice, um, and then they would sell the yeast separately so that you could make wine at home. And this is actually really what kept Napa afloat, um, but not by much. Most wineries still shut down, and by the end of Prohibition, there really, really wasn't a lot left. And it kind of stayed that way. It kind of stayed in this sort of like agricultural winery uh, no man's land up until the 60s. It took them a long time to recover economically from prohibition. And then enter Robert Mondavi, the man. Uh, he came in with a lot of money. He bought all the fanciest new toys and winemaking supplies. Um, and that's really something that you'll see kind of happen all over the world when a winemaking region gets invigorated. It's because somebody comes in with a lot of money and buys, you know, all the new gadgets. Um, and we kind of see this happening has happened a few times in the uh, early 21st century even with places like Greece or Hungary where it's like they were making wine in a very sort of like traditional style and then somebody came with money and then all of a sudden they're making, you know, these really modern um, age-worthy wines. And Mondavi really did that for Napa in the 60s. He built this big winery in Oakville and his uh, sort of claim to fame was he was only making uh, dry Bordeaux-style wines. And this at the time was uh, still, like, kind of crazy talk, because even in the 1960s, people were still really, really loving on sweet wine. I have, or had, they're past, they've passed away now, but British grandparents, and I can attest uh, to... Um, my own memory that that generation loved to drink things like sweet cherry and sweet port, and that was their thing. So to come out swinging in the 60s and be like, no, this is the wine that we make and it's dry was actually um, surprisingly revolutionary. And it only grew from there because after Mondavi moved in, the industry exploded. And by the end of the 60s uh, in America, I think it was actually 1968 or 1969, I'd, I'd have to fact check that, but the consumption of dry wine actually started to outpace those cream sherries and those sweet wines that everyone was crazy about. So in a nutshell, that's where we stand today. Uh, a few fires and a couple earthquakes later, and the Napa wine industry really continued to grow and take off. Um, not as complicated as many of the European wine classification systems as the industry started to grow, though they felt they needed to make things a little bit more universal uh, across the board. And in 1980, they established uh, the AVA system, um, basically a nod to France's AOP system. And it stands for American Viticultural Area, and it is regulated by the ATP. P-A-F-P. Uh, Napa was the second region to be delimited under the AVA system. Most people would probably think it's the first, um, but the first was actually in Missouri. Go figure, Snake River Valley. I forgot one important thing, so I might have mentioned that before we move on, and that's kind of a big thing. And you can't really talk about Napa at all, um, ever, and how important and cool it is if you don't talk about uh, the judgment of Paris uh, before we move on from history. There is literally a whole book on it, um, and I should have mentioned it at the top of the show, but I'm going to mention it now. Uh, and it's called The Judgment of Paris, and I own it, and I've read it, um, and it was really good. Uh, so the deal was, is that in 1976, Napa is taking off. Uh, Steven Spurrier, a now legend, who I once got to meet, um, we shook hands. I 
forget what shaking hands with people feels like. It must have been so nice. Anyways, he, yeah, wow, he's very, very nice. I felt like standing near him, I was just like, I didn't have anything to say or contribute, but I was just kind of like, I'm just going to stand here because ah, I'm probably not going to get to do this again. But anyways, he was living in Paris um, and he ran a wine shop. Um, and he's British, but he'd been working in Paris and running his wine shop and teaching classes and all that stuff for a while. And he decides to organize an event. And he's now, he's a writer, he's a critic, he's, he's basically done everything. He's amazing. But now that American wine was making a bit of a splash, um, the whole thing was to commemorate the 200th birthday of America. So they thought they would have this, uh, tasting event, and it was a blind tasting to compare the wines of California to the great wines of France. And we're talking mostly um, the Bordeaux and the Burgundies um, and see how they stack up with a panel of, you know, um, the greatest wine critics, uh, judges and tasters in France. So spoiler alert, California wins. <laughs> and it was pretty epic, um, as epic as a bunch of middle-aged white people sitting around and drinking wine can be. But Chateau Montalena uh, beat Domaine Rouleau Merceau Charmes uh, Burgundy in the Chardonnay category and took first place, Chateau Montalena, uh, which is in Calistoga. And Stag's Leap Wine Cellars took top place for Cabernet Sauvignon, beating out the winemaking giant of Bordeaux, the Chateau Mouton Rothschild, arguably one of the best producers in Bordeaux. Actually, they are one of the best producers of Bordeaux. And this was huge. It made the interest in Napa even bigger. And this is when things really started to take off. Until a few days ago, there were just over uh, 450 working wineries in the Napa Valley. And not to get dark again, like I did at the top, but um, that has probably changed. Hmm. Sad. Okay. Napa is located uh, just north of San Francisco, and it is, in the truest sense of the word, a valley. Uh, on the eastern side of the valley, you have the Vaca Mountain Range, V-A-C-A, and on the western side, you have the Mayacamas Mountain Range. Uh, and the Mayacamas is actually the dividing line between Sonoma and Napa. And it's what makes Napa slightly hotter and drier uh, than the neighboring region of Sonoma. Re my uh, episode on Alsace, rain shadows. But it's not a huge mountain range. So the rain does get into Napa. But they tend to grow cooler climate grapes in Sonoma, uh, where you tend to find sort of the more heat-loving grapes in Napa. And that's a very broad generalization, but you get the idea. Now, another climatic feature uh, that features prominently in the climate of Napa is the San Francisco Bay, or rather the San Paolo Bay, which is um, sort of an outcrop. Like you have the San Francisco Bay, which is the big bay, and then you have like some little bays that are like satellite bays and San Paolo is sort of a, a satellite bay of the San Francisco Bay. At the northern tip is what they call the Petaluma Gap and that's sort of where all of the fog and the mist um, from this the sea air that crosses the bay uh, comes into these two valleys, comes into Sonoma and comes into Napa. And this is something that gets referred to a little bit more when you talk about Sonoma, but it's definitely also important for Napa. Uh, the currents and the wind in the bay create a considerable amount of fog. And this fog blows respectively into both Sonoma and Napa counties. And in Napa, it gets trapped in the valley by these flanking mountain ranges, which means that Napa is subject to what they call in the wine world a very large diurnal shift. And that means that the temperature fluctuates significantly between day and night. Why they don't just say the temperature fluctuates between day and night? Well, I don't know. They just call it a diurnal shift. In some areas, uh, this can be an average of up to six degrees Celsius, like in the north in uh, Calistoga, where they have like a very high daytime temperature and a very low nighttime temperature. And this is a temperature that's taken um, over the average of the whole year. So, you know, you might have times of the year where it's like very, and you're like, but it, it fluctuates like 25 degrees, but you're talking about the median and the median is about six degrees Celsius because plants don't think about time the way we do. So it's about six degrees Celsius. Don't ask me what that is uh, in Fahrenheit. You can look that up yourself if you need to. Um, the fog is so consistent that there are whole subregions in Napa 
um, that only start above the fog line, um, which is about 1,400 feet above sea level. So you get these like very high elevation growing areas, which produce wine with a fresher fruit profile. And it often gets discussed in Napa the difference between mountain fruit and valley fruit. And I think the best way to sum it up in a nutshell, of course, uh, is that fruit on the valley floor is grown on flatland with more fertile soil and sun exposure. So the result is a grape that didn't have to struggle for many nutrients. And these grapes get like big and fat and juicy. And the result is that they make a pretty fruit forward wine, um, a really juicy kind of wine, where the grapes that are grown high up on the mountain, they don't get as much sun because they're usually covered in a little bit of fog and cloud. They're grown on rockier soils, so they have to work a little harder to get their nutrients. Uh, and when it rains, the water doesn't really stay on the slope. It runs down the mountains. So the grapes that are grown on the valley floor tend to retain a lot of their water, and the grapes that are grown on the mountain may not get as much. They, for lack of a better term, are a little more austere when it comes to time comes to the time for harvest. Um, and the result is that wines grown from mountain grapes um, have fruit that's a little bit more restrained. Uh, and you might get more secondary characteristics in a wine, um, like earthiness and that word everybody loves, minerality. I personally love the wines uh, in Napa made from mountain fruit, but there are also amazing wines coming from the valley floor. And the fact of the matter is, is that you also have a lot of producers that blend the two. So it's hard to say what you're going to get. And I mean, the f also, you have to think that the wines from the mountain are very, very expensive. Um, so you might not get to drink something that says, something that says like exclusively mountain fruit. Mm, eh, might You might be breaking the bank a little bit. Um, back to a quick note on AVAs for just a minute. I know I just switched around there a few times, but um, if you listen to my episode on French wine law, the thrill, I know, then you'll remember that I talked about how the AOC system is like Russian nesting dolls. Well, the AVA system is really no different because, like I said, um, most regions tried to model themselves after France, even regions in the New World for the most part. Uh, even the Italians, who are adamant that in fact they invented the system themselves, and the French clearly had nothing to do with it. I can't wait to do an episode on Italian wine law. It's probably going to be so shady. <laughs> but California itself, uh, the whole state of California, is actually an AVA. Uh, and Napa is one of those nested AVAs inside the state. Um, but Napa also cradles quite a few AVAs, or what I like to sometimes refer to as sub-AVAs within it. I know. Why can't it just be simple? Um, but that's not really how wine works. Uh, and the people who govern wine all over the world seem to love bureaucracy, basically. So just wait until we talk about Germany. Um, writing an episode on Germany actually kind of makes my skin crawl. Um, but the nestled AVAs on the valley floor are as follows, uh, starting from the north and moving down. Uh, the north being the hottest place and the south being the coolest as as you get more south you move towards uh, San Paolo Bay um, and towards San Francisco and you get more of that oceanic oceanic influence and when you're close to the ocean of course you drop a couple degrees it gets a little cooler so in the north uh, we have uh, the very top of the Napa Valley Calistoga AVA, uh, known mostly for Zinfandel, uh, really rich, full-bodied Chardonnays and Merlots. Uh, Chanteau Montalena is here, that estate that won the Chardonnay competition in the Judgment of Paris. Um, the next AVA we have is St. Helena, um, where you'll find uh, Joseph Phelps. Joseph Phelps, of course, being that amazing winery with the turkeys that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then you have Oakville, Rutherford, Yountville, and Stagsleep District. And that's really the historical bed of Napa. That's where all these early pioneers of winemaking were making things happening. Uh, Oakville is obviously where you have the Mondavi HQ set up. Uh, you have amazing really old school uh, wineries in Rutherford and Yountville. And um, of course, 
you have uh, Stag's Leap Winery in Stag's Leap District, that same one that did the Judgment of Paris. Then you have Coombsville and Carneros. Uh, Carneros touches the San Paolo Bay, and it crosses the border of Napa between Sonoma. So you can have wines that come from Carneros that are uh, Sonoma Carneros wines, and then you can have wines from Carneros that are Napa Carneros wines. Because the climate's a little cooler here, you get a lot more sparkling wine um, and Pinot Noirs. Uh, Carneros is really great. I like it. You get uh, sparkling wine producers like Gloria Ferrer. Um, it's really, it's really delicious. They're making really great stuff there. And I mean, I like the wines from all over Napa. Who am I kidding? Um, the Mountain Aviers are a little fewer. Uh, on the Vaca range, uh, in the eastern border of Napa, you have Howell Mountain AVA, a range that starts above the fog line, like I mentioned. Um, and vines here can only be planted at 1,400 feet above sea level. On the western Mayacamas range, you have two more. You have Spring Mountain and Diamond Mountain. But there's great wineries all over Napa, and um, I've already named quite a few of them because, as I mentioned, um, I've been there and it was fabulous. But let's talk quickly about grapes, um, because I've mentioned enough wineries that, and then they're all uh, classic examples, um, so you can absolutely look those up and I'll link them in the show notes. There are really two primary grapes here. There's Cabernet Sauvignon and there's Chardonnay, uh, which we pretty much established when we talked about the Judgment of Paris. And those are the two that kind of knocked it out the gate and were popular enough to to beat the French in 1976. But there's a ton happening in Napa right now. And the fact of the matter is, is that after people replant after the fires, should they choose to, um, there'll probably be a lot more. Uh, in terms of white wine, though, Chardonnay is king. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc comes up right behind, and some of the oldest surviving vines in the valley are of Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, these are in the Tokelon Vineyard, probably one of the more famous named vineyard sites in Napa. And these vines can trace their specific genetic lineage all the way back to Bordeaux. Uh, the Sauvignon Blancs of Napa usually see a little bit of oak. They like to oak things in Napa. And why, you ask, it's just their style. <laughs> a little bit of it has to do with money. Um, because when you have the money to do something, you kind of tend to just do it. But it's also uh, more of like a, a new world thing. They, they, I, I don't want to generalize. They definitely oak things in the old world, but they definitely like to in the new world too. And if you have the cash, why not buy the bottle? Like why not buy the barrels? It's kind of that simplistic. Other reds they make in the Napa are, of course, Merlot. Uh, the wine that was made famous by the movie Sideways, or maybe made not so famous by the movie Sideways, in that famous sort of scene where Paul Giamatti, hi Paul Giamatti, um, if you're listening to this, drop me a line, that was my cat, uh, you're the best. He proclaims he hates Merlot, and then all over California, uh, a few years later, everyone proceeds to tear out their Merlot vines um, and plant, of course, Pinot Noirs. I actually really love that movie, and I think to the wine-educated eye, uh, you know, the final scene of the movie, he's sitting in McDonald's and he's drinking his prized bottle of Cheval Blanc from Bordeaux. Okay, cat. Okay. Yeah, you want in here. You want in my little pillow fort of recording. Get out of here. You know, he's he's drinking from this bottle of Cheval Blanc from Bordeaux, and the irony is is that was his prized bottle of wine, and that wine is actually made up entirely of Merlot. Uh, and we'll talk about that um, when we get to to Bordeaux. The movie's, you know, basically an exploration of wine pretension. Um, and if you keep listening to this podcast, you'll be able to pick up things like that for yourself. So fingers crossed. Um, Merlot is lovely. Don't be fooled. Um, and although it's pretty much uh, dwarfed by plantings of Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, though it is the second most planted grape in Napa, it's a far more gentler and fruity and less tannic close relative of Cabernet Sauvignon. I think it's just really delicious. I really love Merlot, um, and I don't care who knows it. And now I'm going to talk just a little, tiny, tiny little bit uh, about Zinfandel. People hate this grape. Uh, sommeliers especially hate this grape, which is... <laughs> which is so sad. It makes me so sad. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of sweet rosé wine uh, made from Zinfandel. And I feel like if you were a wine person or 
or not, uh, you've definitely drank it in this style, the white Zinfandel style. Uh, my brother used to bring it over to my house, uh, the Behringer white Zinfandel, when we were in university because it cost like um, $11 and you could buy it at the corner store. Um, and it was a little sweet and it was pink and it got the job done. So what I'm about to say is definitely uh, an unpopular opinion. And I'm going to try to keep this podcast uh, pretty unopinionated. Uh, and, you know, not subject you to my own biases. But I'll come out and say it. I love, 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 love Zinfandel. And there are a lot of bad producers of this grape, but there's some really good ones too. And it always kind of tends to be a little sweet. It it does have a little bit of sweetness usually. Um, but I like a little sweetness in my wine. I like sweet Rieslings from Germany too, so shoot me. So the thing with Zinfandel as a grape is that not all of the berries, aka all of the grapes uh, in the bunch, um, ripen at the same time. Um, the individual grapes, um, some of them get really big and ripe and juicy, and some of them stay uh, small and green and sour. And that's just an effect of the grape. It's just in its genetic DNA. In its genetic... Yeah, of course, genetics is DNA. It's in its genetic makeup. Um, but they all get vinified at the same time. And the effect is that if you look a little bit beyond the initial sweetness, there's a real savoriness to this grape uh, that almost reminds me of, like, cheap Chinese food. Um, like, Chinese buffet food. It's got this, like, sweet and sour pork ball... Uh, meaty, savory, sweet taste that I just like am really drawn to and I think is really great. Uh, now again, it's a quality that is found again in top shelves and Fendels. Um, and this grape suffers from a bit of a marketing problem because, uh, its name lends itself to wine puns and you get wines like Seven Deadly Zins. But if you can, and I implore you to seek it out, uh, to find a bottle of the Robert Bialy Black Chicken Zinfandel, buy it and think of me. This is hands down one of my favorite wines that I have ever had. I just, I just really, really like it. Uh, and it's not that expensive. I mean, it's more money than I tend to usually uh, spend on just a like everyday drinking wine, but it it's about 50 to $60, um, which for Napa is cheap. Um, and the Bialy family are farmers. They're the farmers that I was talking about at the top of the episode um, when I spoke about there being farmers and millionaires and billionaires. Um, these are the people that are really the roots of Napa um, and that are still there, the people who are working the land and preserving that kind of pioneer spirit that you think of when you think about California wine. Okay, so... I've talked and talked and talked, and this is a longer episode than normal, um, but I have one more point I want to touch in, and that's the New California Movement. And in the New World, uh, that's everywhere that isn't Europe. Uh, and the laws are a little bit less restricted, where in a place like Burgundy in France, uh, you're pretty beholden to Gros Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, because those are the restrictions of the AOCs. But in the New World, um, and this is true for uh, you know Australia as much as it's for California, you kind of grow what you want as long as it's a certain percentage of what is grown from the region in the bottle. So for the majority of the time since Robert Mondavi and the Judgment of Paris, people in Napa um, were growing the same grapes that were initially successful, the Chardonnays and the Cabernet Sauvignons. But I want to say in about the last 15 years, and maybe this is me extrapolating a timeline, so uh, don't quote me on it, um, People started growing grapes that were grown in other warm climate regions from around the world. So uh, things like Malbec, a grape that was originally from France and successful in Argentina, um, is drought resistant. Um, people were like, maybe we can do that in Napa. Um, there's a ton of other grapes, uh, like the grape Ribola Gialla, um, a grape that's eastern to the uh, <laughs> eastern that's native to the eastern edge of Italy, um, in the province of Friuli, Venzia Giulia, um, and has taken strangely well to California and Western Australia. And the thing is, is that not all grapevines um, become old grapevines. They start to lose their productivity over time. And when you have an old vine, um, you do get very good grapes, but you get 
fewer of them. Uh, and so a lot of them become less productive. And that's so, and that's the case for many uh, grapevines that were planted in the 80s and then got dug up in the early 2000s and made way for a sort of uh, more innovative plantings. And the master of this and the one that is beloved by sommeliers, uh, and I think is a great example, and it's been used before, is Mathiasin. Um, they make a Ribola Gialla. They also make a Malbec. And they also do the classics. They make a Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, oh, oh poor Pino. He's, he's crying in the background. Yeah, my dog's name is Pino. Uh, he's a little bull terrier. He's really cute. Um, I'm almost done this episode, so I'll let him out in a second. But they also make uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. They also make a Chardonnay. Um, their Chardonnay is exceptional. Um, but they're really exemplary of this movement. And this movement um, is trying to plant the best grape uh, for the terroir. Um, and that essentially means for the place and the climate. Because in Italy, for example, we know what the best grape is. Um, you didn't have to try it over and over again um, because somebody already did that hundreds of years before. Um, but in the New World, in a place like California, um, we don't have, you know, an 800-year lineage of growing grapes, and we're still kind of trying to figure out what works. Um, so this is the New California Movement. It's the idea that we still might be trying to figure it out. Um, and this sort of testing process. Uh, so please go out and buy a bottle of California wine this week. That is my, that is the crux, or that's sort of the, the, um, the meat of my California episode. Uh, my love letter to Napa. If I didn't convince you, that's fine, but do it for, you know, the forklift driver who just lost his job, um, who's sitting in a hotel room three, hundred kilometers away from his partner and his kids wondering if his job will exist in a couple months because you know these owners yeah they can leave with their insurance um, but they can't rebuild without that guy and they can't rebuild without us buying their wine so go out grab something california if it's not in your wheelhouse try something new try it anyway i also make a living on selling wine to people and there are lots of wines out there there are lots of places to try um, but there's only one Napa. And with that, I will remind you that House Wine is an independent podcast. It's produced, uh, written, and narrated by me, Rachel. If you want to request an episode, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, I definitely take requests. Um, you can email this podcast at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. Um, I'll accept corrections too. Hopefully there's not too many. Like I said, my name is Rachel. You can find me on Instagram at Rachel Picard. That's Rachel with an A-E-L and Picard like the captain. Uh, my podcast art was done by Kelly Lauren. She's a fabulous artist and illustrator. Uh, and you can check her out on Instagram as well at K-L-Y-L-A-U-R-E-N. Uh, I hope this opened up I hope this opened you up to Napa and drank some Zinfandel for me. Until we meet again, may you drink something delicious. Public announcement, I hope it's Zinfandel. Have a great week. Cheers. Cheers.